Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. <laughs> you pop craze youngsters and welcome back to part three of episode 69 of chart music as my dear friends taylor parks and david stubbs join me al needham on a plunge into the december 27th 1974 episode of top of the pops come on now let's not fanny about let us rejoin the episode in progress the melodious meanderings of one George McCray. Uh, rock your Cooey. baby. Oh, Christmas. I thought as it was Crimbo, I'll buy you a present oh. on the air, as it were. Oh, I've always wanted one of these. You don't I, know what it is. Yes, yes I do. Yeah, oh, no. no. Oh. What are you going to do? Oh. Now, equal terms to introduce... Oh, she was born with a mole on her face. Stephanie Desaix. Oh. <laughs> Alone again. Outros rock your baby. And then he's joined by Travis, sporting a very long pink paper hat that makes him look like he's got a high top fade. And brandishing a sizably rectangular Christmas present. Edmunds reacts by taking the gift, placing it on the floor, and standing on it. So he's now the same height as Travis. Yeah. A couple of years later, you would never have got Noel to agree to that hilarious visual gag because it's at his expense. No, no. But right now, he still has to pay his dues before he can start punching down. This appalling confection is brought to a close by Edmunds making a joke out of the title of the next song and Travis visibly salivating at its performer. Mm. DLT expresses his lust for Stephanie de Sykes, for it is she, Mm. by lapsing into what I think might be some kind of wild black man voice. And he goes, ooh, Stephanie Ah. de Sykes, ah, Mm. like... She should be grateful that he's controlling himself. Mm. Stephanie Sykes, mind you, not featured in the now notorious A Bit of a Star. No. DLT's coffee table book, A Clef. I know because I went and checked and <laughs> she's not there. Not in either of my copies. No. Um, 
Despite being <laughs> You've exactly got two the, copies of a bit of a star by I David Lynch. No idea how. I didn't realise until I went and looked. But yes, um, <laughs> but she's exactly the sort of person that that book is full of. Oh yes, she's she's not in it, and I don't know if that was a a fuck off you, Harry Wanker, on her part, mm. or just that her star fell so sharpish, even yeah. compared to some of the nineteen seventies ladies lucky enough to be chosen to feature in that. Uh, book. And she'd be right next in Travis's little black book to Lindsay DePaul. You'd think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> round about this time, she was a household name. <laughs> yes. You know. Like, we, 1974, the in-house singer on That's Life. Yes. With exclamation mark, like, Frampton Comes Alive, as the sort of like a Millicent Martin for people born in the 19th century. Mm. And then, by 1984, I don't think anyone had ever heard of her. No. Did she even make Blankety Blank? No. Bottom left seat, I would imagine. By now, Travis is wearing a pink paper hat, which just pushes all his hair right down. Mm. He's never looked more Nasher-like, has he? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or he looks like one of the ghosts in a knockoff Spectrum version of (laughs) Pac-Man. It's terrifying. Yeah, it looks like a cartoon of smoke coming out of an exhaust pipe. Yes. (laughs) Born in Harlow in 1948, Stephanie Wrighton began her career as a session singer in the Sixfinties and put out her first single under the name Verite in 1972. However, it was television where she initially made her name when she became a regular singer on the first series of That's Life in 1973. Earlier this year, she was offered the part of a troubled nightclub singer called Holly Brown in the hard-hitting ITV documentary series about the cutting-edge world of motel management, Crossroads. (laughs) During her run in the series, she debuted a song which had been written for the show by Roger Holman and Simon May, which became a certified banger on the King's Oak club scene and was aired constantly until it penetrated the skulls of the 18 million non-Ors who regularly watched Crossroads. On its release, it smashed into the chart as the highest new entry at number 14 in mid-July, then soared to number 3 and a week later made it to number two as she's still a participant in that's life and therefore a bbc regular she's been automatically waved onto this top of the pops and here she is with her all-male backing trio rain which features simon may Mm. oh Nice to see the BBC making a bit of a Christmassy effort here because we get to see a shot of De Sykes ringed by an overlay of tinsel as if she was performing in the glory hole of the Mineshaft's Christmas party. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> and then we get to see her having a bit of a sing with rain next to some Christmas trees. And, you know, oh, rain appear to have come dressed as uh, humbugs, hoopy tank tops over white shirts and black slacks mm. in front of some non-more 70s white Christmas trees. Yeah. Or if you saw a white christmas tree in someone's house in 1974 you you knew they were doing all right for the same yeah. that's like the the, the pacifist version <laughs> i suppose they're sort of like the pips to her gladys knight here really aren't they as it were yes but, uh, yeah sort of harvest of restaurants of men you know yeah i spent a lot of time looking at them because mm. what's a little bit uneasier is that i know of stephanie sykes mainly 
as the mother of the late Toby Slater, would be yes. post-Brit pop teen star, best known for being halfway through the premiere of his video on the chart show when ITV cut away for the news flash about Princess Diana's car crash, <laughs> and mm. who I sort of very vaguely knew years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, but that makes it hard to take the piss, because I look at her and I just see him, because there's a very definite mm. family resemblance. Yeah. Oh, right. I feel a bit wrong. So I spent most of the time looking at Rain, who are not the Jordanaires. And no. I don't know what they actually are. To me, they look like three butchers disguised as mint Vionetta. <laughs> the only thing that really stands up about her, which was a common thing at the time, is that flaxen lank hair. Mm. You know, that centre-parted drape like Jane from Rod Jane and Fred. Yes. You know, or Neil from The Young Ones. Mm. Or Dougal. Just sort of scraped in both directions and hanging down like towels on a towel rail. Mm. Because that was normal hair at the time, wasn't it? That was just the default. Mm. It was, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, they make a rod for their own backs with the premise of the song, really. It means they've got like, yes. that grin pinned like a kind of synchronised swimmer throughout the whole thing. And yes. you can sense the strain at certain points. It's a very Eurovision song, isn't it? Oh, very much. You can easily see this um, coming forth yeah. in the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, yeah. But the lyrics are really jarring. Yes. Putting aside the fact that being ripped out of your mother's womb must be the most fucking terrifying thing of your life thus far. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. line, the whole of my life's been a pantomime. That doesn't sound fun. Does mm. it? Well, no, no, just yeah, yeah. your own business, <laughs> yeah. and a load of kids suddenly yeah. start shouting, "He's behind you!" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like Ian Paisley and Jerry Adams in a horse together. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's terrible. I had to look very closely at the, these lyrics because it puzzled oh, yes. me as well. It's like all well, forget the politicians, nuclear yes. fissions. The gloomy headlines, official deadlines. Mm. It's a bit of a puzzling lyric in that it comes on like it's going to be, like a tears of a clown thing. Mm. You know, the whole of her life's been a pantomime. You're assuming that the next thought will be that she's hurting inside. Yes. And can't express it. Yeah, that, that's where Smokey Robinson would have gone. Yeah, mm. well, you know, like she's somehow limited by this identity as a, a selfless marionette. But as mm. the song goes on... There really isn't any of that, and she's actually no. quite jolly about it. Mm. And the line, born with a need to embrace, would have resonated with uh, Dave Lee Travis, wouldn't it? <laughs> but it's the fact that yeah. this song is so lacking in reflection and so weirdly open in its robotic good cheer almost mm. makes it feel sadder and more desolate. Do you know what I mean? It's like on yeah. that last clip, it's like this is the last knockings of that outmoded mainstream, you know, 1974 version. It's like somebody thought Jack in the Box by Cloda Rogers sounded a bit morose. Yes. Mm. Uh, but in 1960, <laughs> where this belongs, stuff like this was at least a reflection of the, the cheery, non-contemplative mood of the country. Mm. But this is not 1960. And in oh, no. cynical, violent times, the best that this mm. could hope to sound is tragic. And it's escapism, but... All the contemporary and believable methods of musical escapism in 1974 involved drug-assisted flight from reality or cold humour or the expression of filthy human joy as opposed to this sort of flattened care-home sing-along, you know, which even yeah. in 1974 sounds pained and exhausting, like born mm. with a rictus grin on its face, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, it's liquid crossroads, though, isn't it, no, it in a is. sense? I mean, you know, there's a, there's a certain balm in that respect. And maybe they are genuinely unconscious of the, you know, maybe it's channeling the spirit of Noel Gordon. I mean, you know, <laughs> mm. she had a smile on her face most of the time because she was pissed every day. Yes. You know? Oh, the so. stories I've heard about her. Uh, oh, yeah. But anyway, thank God we can finally have the discussion of crossroads that chart music was initially set up for because the programme hung over the 70s like a, a wet tea towel over a chip pan fire, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> What influence did Crossroads have on your life, chaps? Well, I watched it. Was it watched in your house? Yeah, I, it was watched by me as well. I yeah, I, I rolled with it definitely. Mm. It wasn't watched in our house. It was watched in my nan's house. Yes, so it was a fixture of being around my nan. Yeah, my nan all watched it, but it was on our house as well because round about this time, it was always the second to last thing I ever saw on telly before I was forced into bed. Yeah. Uh, because ATV mm. would run a cartoon afterwards at about five to seven or something like that, and then Peter Tomlinson or Mike Prince would roll up and, and tell me personally that i had to go to bed <laughs> so around about this time it didn't matter how shit crossroads was and it was i just wanted it to go on for fucking hours so i could stay up yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like a lot of stuff in the 70s you didn't watch it because it was good you watched it because it was on and of course when people talk about soap operas and pop they invariably bang on about neighbors and eastenders but i'm sorry you can't fuck with the power of crossroads and its myriad attempts to crack the charts mm. and it all started in the late 60s when sue nick who was playing the part of a waitress who got up on stage at a Birmingham night spot, spelt N-I-T-E, of, of course, course. Oh, recorded yeah. the song she sang for Pi, and it got to number 17 in July of 1968. But then... Carl Wayne, formerly of The Move and Turner Downer of Sugar Baby Love, joined the cast as Colin the Milkman and recorded a version of the theme tune with lyrics called Standing at the Crossroads. I never knew that. Yeah. Even as a Move fan, I never knew that. Yeah. Wow. And, and he ended up marrying Miss Diane in real life yeah, after she that. got divorced from Tommy Vance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this year... Um, Jonathan King's UK records released To My Daughter by Noel Gordon. Oh. And in 1975, with the impetus firmly behind it because of this song, they put out the Crossroads Wedding Party LP mm. to commemorate the nuptials of Meg Mortimer and her dear Hugh, which features two Stephanie DeSyke songs. Oh. And then Music for Pleasure put out a collection of standards called Noel Gordon Sings. <laughs> and then, of course, in 1978, with post-punk redolent throughout the nation Paul Henry commemorated the death of Benny's fiance on the morning of their wedding with Benny's song and followed it up with waiting at the crossroads a few years later Uh, and we haven't even touched upon the cashing records from Noel Gordon's axing from Crossroads in 1981, including the first and last Noel by the Gay Gordons mm. and Meggie's Magic by Bill Buckler, who went on to become one of Esther's bitches in That's Life. Yeah, I've heard that one. It's just yeah. say. Bill Buckley is no Tim Buckley. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there was I'm Gonna Watch Crossroads, which was a breguet-tinged tribute <laughs> by local oh, comedians yes. Alan and Blewett. That's fucking brilliant. His tis, Popular Midlands entertainers. Yeah. And let's not forget Benny. 
by Kathy Staff, who played <laughs> Miss Luke before she became Compo's lust object in Last of the Summer Wine. Summer Wine. Yeah. And of course, Glenda and the Test Tube Baby by the Tour Doubles in 1983 about Glenda Brownlow's attempts to sport. What a fucking rich legacy Crossroads has, has bestowed upon our nation. You're also leaving out uh, Descent of the Stiper Stones by Half Man Half Biscuit, which is a. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's an, it's an extended uh, recitation uh, about him meeting uh, the woman who played Glenda Brownlow mm. uh, in a Chandler's in Montgomery. <laughs> She's worth a listen, if just for finally doing the pun that everyone has been waiting years to do, where mm. makes reference to uh, the tumultuous life of uh, Father Arthur in the programme, mm. um, finishing off by saying... The crazy world of Arthur Brown, like yes. that, which you know, <laughs> you, you, it's almost one of those, you just have to say it almost apologetically. It's, it, it needs to be said. Mm. Different soap, um, and I can't even remember the name of the band, but they did, there was somebody who did Ernie Bishop's Dead Body. Uh, <laughs> remember that? <laughs> you're looking a bit pale, Ernie. I think they were a kind of proto half man, half biscuit. Right. But, uh, Thing is, I've been thinking about Stephanie de Sykes here. Right? Do you remember? When you used to get British cheeses other than cheddar or red Leicester, mm. they're like sports other than football. They still yeah. exist, but you just you never see them around. No, mm. they used to be common. Speedway, yeah. Like that. yeah. I mean, when was the last time you had a nibble of creamy Lancashire no. or Derby cheese? You know, mm-hmm. one mouthful of that, you'd have instant Proustian recall of the days when the average passerby could name at least five members of the England cricket team. Yeah. Or mm. six mm. famous snooker players, right? Mm. Not that mm. I'm getting nostalgic, don't get me wrong. Do you remember real bin men? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, but it's, it's not nostalgic because it's horrible. Next to that now exotic mm. cheese on the table would have been some homemade jam presented as though it met the basic acceptable standards of spreadable confectionery even though it wasn't strawberry jam or raspberry jam or any of the flavors jam is meant to be and from which jam gained its reputation as a treat it would have been like loganberry jam or crab apple or green gauge or rose hip or some kind of wicker man nightmare indigenous hedgerow substance you know with a rubber band around the paper lid in the cupboard for four years with a sticker on it with a date in borrow and you'd be expected to act as if it was nice do you know what i mean mm. as though the dissolution and resetting of these plants was an achievement for which your host should be congratulated but the 70s was full of this weird penny pinching in areas where it wasn't needed right mm. like a jar of robertson's jam would have cost you about 2p in 1974 inadvertently racist label and all which was mm. less than the cost of buying some jars and a set of paper lids and a lot quicker you know and it wouldn't have been buttercup flavor or adder's tongue or root of hemlock it, you know it might have been nice instead it was exactly the same with home brewing because everyone including my dad was neck deep in this false economy right of home mm. oh god yeah 
My granddad. Seven days jankers he own brewed. Yeah, bloody yeah, hell. Yeah, so did my dad. Bubbling flasks and jars over it, like breaking bad. You know what I mean? It'd yes. Like, it was like trying to make beer with all these plastic tubes and bags. It looked like a colostomy. And yes. <laughs> by all accounts, it tasted about as good. You'd end up with this brown, woody liquid with some sediment in the bottom. And people would be standing there lying to themselves, like, mm, it's not bad, you know. And people um, would come around to try it. I remember people people <laughs> yeah. coming around to have a taste of my dad's bit and then they'd lie to him and say oh it's not bad you know like it was mm. a mortal insult to acknowledge the reality of mm. how dreadful this barley infused shit water really was compared to a <laughs> six pack of cans which at the time would have set you back about 40 pence like so, so yeah. cheap even the unemployed mm. could afford them i used to drink them in the <laughs> street at 1 p.m it was quite a double diamond though yeah. it didn't, didn't work any wonders on me i tell you i, I had that when i was 12 and i didn't drink again for six years <laughs> shy and stick to me lemonade i wonder if the germans have a word for nostalgia for the horrible actually that's a brexit i think it is david yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the point is that's kind of what Stephanie de Sykes is like, or at least this record. <laughs> you could have gone out and got a blandly semi-acceptable version of this for pennies from some American musical conglomerate, you know, mm. pre-packed and ready to go. But instead, it sounds like it's been cooked up under the sink in a semi-detached house in Enfield. And when you try it, it makes you want to puke to the point of not even caring that nowadays that modest family home in Enfield has been replaced by a block of much smaller flats, which cost 700 times as much. One of them now occupied by a yuppie with a hippie beard, who's just brought up the building down the street, which used to be a food bank until the donations dried up and turned mm. it into an 85 quid a meal street food restaurant oh. called The Food Bank. Mm. <laughs> so, born with a smile on my face, spent one week at number two, kept at bay by Rock Your Baby, but the Sykes Rain ATV Triforce continued to flourish, resulting in Golden Day, the theme tune to the new series of The Golden Shot, when Bob Monkhouse returned after the Liz Truss-like stewardship of Charlie Williams. <laughs> <laughs> An odyssey, the theme for ATV startup sequence, which was practically the national anthem of the Midlands at that time. And when Holly Brown returned to Crossroads to sing at the wedding of Meg Mortimer, the song she sang, We'll Find Our Day, became De Sykes' follow-up, getting to number 17 for two weeks in May of 1975. When Diminishing Return set in, De Sykes appeared in the 1975 pop comedy Side by Side, then joined Madeline Bell and Katie Kassoon, amongst others, in a collective of backing singers called The Birds of Paris, who backed assorted French disco sorts, including Sarone, and then teamed up with her baby father, Stuart Slater, to write two Eurovision entries, The Bad Old Days for Coco in 1978 and Love Enough for Two for Prima Donna in 1980, before teaming up with her new partner, Angus Deaton, for a piss-take of Bucks Fizz's winning entrant called It's Only a Wind-Up, under the name Brown Ale. 
Meanwhile, Simon May continued his relationship with Crossroads two years later when he wrote and sang Summer of My Life to soundtrack Bob Powell's marriage falling apart as he goes blind, which was released and got to number seven for three weeks in October of 1976. And when Crossroads recycled the storyline for a third time in 1981, when the singer Kate Loring, played by Kate Robbins, whose cousin Paul McCartney tacked a guitar solo of the Crossroads theme at the end of the Wings album Venus and Mars in 1975, recorded a song also written by May called More Than In Love in a recording studio in the basement of the motel, which appeared out of nowhere. It got to number two in June of 1981 held off the penthouse suite of the charts by Being With You by Smokey Robinson. And after switching to the BBC in the mid-80s, he took the Howard's Way theme to number 21 in November of 1985, wrote Anyone Can Fall In Love, the EastEnders theme with words, which Anita Dobson took to number four for two weeks in August of 1986, repeated the trick with the Howard's Way theme and called it Always There, which Marty Webb took to number 13 in October of 1986, wrote Every Loser Wins for Nick Barry, which got to number one for three weeks in the same month, and something out of nothing for Letitia Dean and Paul Medford, which got to number 12 in November of the same year. What a fucking rabbit hole. Stephanie decides, of course, and born with a smile on her face. We take you back now to the top of the pops from June of this year, when Sparks made it straight into number two, with this town ain't big enough for the both of us. Edmunds, alone again, tells us we're going back to June of this year, for this town ain't big enough for both of us, by Sparks. We covered Sparks in chart music number 45 during their Aventis renaissance when they took Beat the Clock to number 10 in August of 1979. But this is the single that brought them to the dance. It was the first release on their new label, Island Records, who relocated the duo to the UK, put an advert in Melody Maker which read, Wanted, new bass player for Sparks, must be beard free and exciting, (laughs) picked up Martin Gordon and added Norman Dinky Diamond on drums and Adrian Fisher on guitar. After riffling through the BBC sound effects library for the right gunshot sound effect, the band pushed for it to be the lead-off single from their LP Kimono My House, but their producer Muff Windwood was reluctant to put it out, as it was a bit mad, even by early 70s standards. But when he played it to his mate Elton John, the I'm Dill Danding hitmaker, he said, <laughs> Listen, I'll bet you a hundred quid that it makes the top three. And when Winwood's wife agreed with John, he relented. Despite missing out on that Top of the Pops performance on its release in April of this year, it eventually entered the chart at number 49 in the first week of May. 
The following week, it soared 21 places to number 27, and with all the MU paperwork signed, they made their Top of the Pops debut that week, and a nation's youth got stared at by Ron Mayle for the first time. The week after that, it soared another 18 places to number 9, and a fortnight later, it got to number 2. And here is a repeat of their debut performance. And as soon as I decided that we were going to do the 1974 post-Christmas episode, I knew this was going to be on it, because no fucking way are the BBC letting sparks on the telly on Christmas afternoon while the extended family are letting their dinners go down and end up agitating elderly relatives who are suddenly being confronted with the sight of Hitler playing the keyboards. (laughs) Can you imagine such a thing? I mean, obviously, I saw this at the time. It made an incredibly vivid impression on me, and Mm. I think I'd have to say... Thinking about it, this is probably my favourite ever Top of the Pops appearance. Ooh. And I might even you know, argue it, it, it's the best ever, perhaps, but that's perhaps uh, more subjective, really. Now say it, David. It's interesting that they were relocated to the UK. It's a bit like Jimi Hendrix was relocated to the UK. And you think, yeah. this couldn't have happened in America. This couldn't have been launched in America. It had mm. to be launched in the context of, well, in this particular instance, you know, Top of the Pops. It's absolutely perfect for it. No. I could say it actually sort of stands out from what else has been going on tonight but the strange thing is that actually apart from the male brothers the other geezers could have been playing earlier on with the rubettes or alvin stardust actually oddly mm. enough they you know apart from the kind of the brilliant pylon of the guitars that you get in the, in the middle i mean you know they're slightly superfluous really it's really about them they were sort of a, a duo within a five piece but um mm. clearly the hitler thing was just the most astonishing yes. thing that i'd ever seen in the context of pop you know because it is so on pop what was he doing there is he playing under sufferance you know what's what's the score mm. the queerness aspect is interesting I was thinking about this because me and all my schoolmates, we love the queerness of glam and stuff like that. We love, you know, like Steve Priest in Sweet or whatever. Mm. You know, these these are our favourite things, but it didn't actually make us more enlightened as regards gender fluidity. It didn't make us more open-minded. You know, we love these people, yeah. but at the same time, we thought they were a bunch of puffs. Mm. who wore frilly knickers and bras and lipstick. And, of course, they yes. got the back of old Seven Days Jankers, my granddad. But it didn't decrease our homophobia, seeing these kind of people. It was celebrated. It was a weirdly ambivalent relationship. Yeah, know. it was puffs in their proper place. Mm. Yeah. Up on stage for the entertainment of the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, Russell here, he looks like a Jim Morrison you'd be happy to go out for a drink with and know that nothing fucking major is going to happen. Mm. <laughs> you wouldn't have to listen to his poetry. Yes. <laughs> and Ron, of course. This is the debut performance of Sparks on Top of the Pops, as far as I know. And right away, he's looking at us, watching him on the telly, and his expression is, oh, so you're here again, are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we said last time we did Sparks, he always looked at the camera as if he was offended that we were watching and he was waiting for us to go because we clearly didn't belong here we weren't grown up enough mm. to appreciate this mm. yeah yeah i mean everyone goes on about the scariest of ron mail but you know i have to say he came pretty low on my list of the things that terrified me on 1974 oh yeah yeah it wasn't terror yeah in the top 10 it went dying spiders Mm. The News at 10 theme tune, (laughs) Dr. Rat out of Rat Trapping Core, Mm. Big Writing, The Humphreys, that shot of the burglar running away on the Watch Out There's a FIFA Bar advert, which absolutely terrified me, even though the fucker's running away from me, not at me. Chinese restaurants, (laughs) the dream I kept having where I was at school or home and I just floated upwards and upwards and no one even noticed, even though I was screaming. I think that came off a public information film. 
Oh, and Ron Mail. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So pretty low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was wary of him. I wasn't outright terrified. But I, I think what's so clever about it is that he doesn't overhammer. He doesn't sort of mouth, you know, bloody rubbish or what's all this nonsense. You know, mm. it's a much. It's, it's more kind of enigmatic, really. You know, it's, it's like yeah. uh, you know the sort of absurdism about it. You know, like what precisely he's doing there, kind of sort of clanking mechanically away. Mm. And of course, you know that whole yin yang thing between him and his brother is what actually ultimately yeah. makes him such a great electronic music duo. You've always got to have that yin yang element you know like in suicide or whatever or soft cell you say that david but the way they come off on stage it's like do these two even know each other mm, mm. how could they even know each other mm. i mean you had that with mark Holman and dave ball but you could accept that they were mates and they were both there and they'd arrive together mm. and they'd leave together with the male brothers who are fucking brothers it's like do you two even get on mm, mm. how can you yeah yeah and short hair was such a radical thing you know back then it was you know absolutely mm. no one had short hair unless they were prince charles or whatever you know and it's <laughs> any kid whose parents insisted on you know giving them short back and sides or whatever would get absolutely tortured you know in the playground mm. yeah and obviously when you watch this the first thing that strikes you is the visual appeal of sparks mm. but as well as that there's something else which makes them stand out. Mm. One thing this programme highlights about the hits of 1974 is that although there's a lot to say about them, there's not usually lots and lots to say about the actual music itself, mm. which tends to be either crunchy and basic or soupy or childlike. Mm. And you can't really discuss or describe the architecture of the sound or the shape or the sonic picture, or the construction of the song, the way you absolutely can with big hits of other periods, whether it's the Bee Gees or Frankie Goes to Hollywood or Beyonce, you know. But this is very much an exception to that. Mm. This is one of very, very few tracks on this episode which sounds like it's in 3D mm. rather than mm. music being made by cardboard cutouts. Yeah, blue it's, a, it's an edifice, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, this record does things and goes mm. places. It does impossible things and goes to imaginary places mm. for real. No idea how. But if you've never heard this record before... There's no possible way you could predict what was going to happen next. Mm. And even if you've heard it a thousand times, you still sometimes forget what's going to happen yeah. next. Because there's so much going on, and so much of it is completely unpredictable without any of it feeling forced. Mm-hmm. And even in the Sparks catalogue, which is obviously a treasure box, this is the one. Yeah, right? They're a band with lots of semi-hidden gems to their name and all that but this is the one this really is the greatest thing they ever did Mm. because everything that was great about them is right here at its best and it's most immediate and exciting and appealing and 99 times out of 100 when there's one hit in a band's back catalogue that is the perfection of that band Mm. in that way it's all you need and the rest of their Mm. stuff is an afterthought yeah it's just a restating of a theme but the amazing thing about sparks is that they had this one big strike right you know pretty close to the beginning Mm. where they excelled themselves in being themselves and they made hours and hours of other music which is almost as good Mm. and that's not almost as in close but no cigar that's almost in the sense of being independently startling and energising, despite not being this town ain't big enough for the both of us, mm. which very few things are. Mm. Their whole career, it's like the same thing seen from a multitude of different angles, each of them 
interesting and unique it's just that this one is face on right there in front of you and it's everything you want from sparks at maximum volume and intensity yeah i mean that's right the intensity is is, is, the guitars they really kind of whip up storm there and i think Mm. also it's one of these things where it has to take place in 1974 and it has to be on top of the pops that is its element it's not something that you know a rock festival or whatever or something would sound better if you go and see them live it's got to be in this situation you know right here right then yeah the whole thing the whole creation can only exist for me in in that particular moment mm. yeah and it's really important because occasionally you get moments like this where you're watching top of the pops like you're watching 1974 and you're thinking, well, this or that is quite tidy and professional, and mm. I can see the charm of this, and there's a certain value to that. But it all seems a little bit distant and out of focus, and at worst, it's like a trick that's being played on you. you mm. know. And then suddenly something like this comes on, and you think, oh, right, yeah, in fact, whatever the mainstream looked like, creativity and the generation of bright ideas where it happened was actually more intense back then than it is now and all this other stuff is absolute junk by comparison and presumably that's why people back then were so evangelical and stony-faced about the separation of art and pap which they decreed could not coexist but the problem was they often misjudged which was which because there's a whole lot of nonsense from 1974 that proves often at very great lengths, that pap would turn up disguised as art. Mm. And now, here are sparks to prove that the opposite was also true. Mm. And while in some ways they seem absolutely 100% 1974, in others they're maybe a little bit out of time because they hark back to the period before that separation when there was no concept of cult and so in pop music and television and a few other areas the most imaginative and the most forward-thinking popular art would have to aim for actual popularity Mm. and would often achieve it Mm. you know Beatles, Mm. etc and there are some periods in pop history where that's been true of pop music generally where the most exciting and imaginative music was in the charts but 1974 is not among them like we were saying before there's good stuff in the charts but you could only rely on soul and reggae because most white acts with bright ideas Hmm. are album orientated Mm. whereas sparks are still doing that 60s thing of folding artistic ideas and crazy concepts into just about radio friendly music Mm. and The unusual thing about this is that they're not an art band who make the occasional commercial pop record like Roxy Music Mm. or even David Bowie to an extent. They're an out-and-out pop band, but they're an out-and-out pop band whose artistry is baked into what they do Mm. and how they do it. So, like, if you have a collection of Roxy Music singles that's not the best Roxy Music album, or at least it's certainly not the best imaginable Roxy Music album. Whereas if you were to compile a compilation of the very best of Sparks from their whole career, the vast majority of the tracks you put on it would be singles. And there aren't that many artistic groups where that's the case, you know. Mm. Mm. madness or whatever blondie but almost none from this period yeah i mean the thing about it, it this it's it's self-evident it's writ large i mean of course you know but well, music critics or whatever i mean people you know can have differences of taste you know one of us might love something one might despise another etc etc but anybody who was 
anything less than absolutely laudatory of this, I mean, I think it's just fundamentally untrustworthy. I'm sure at the time there yeah. were a lot of eminent, sensible critics who um, thought this was, you know, a kind of a nonsense. There might even be some now. I doubt there's very many, or they've probably got the sense to keep their mouths shut because anybody who's absolutely, you know, less than full of praise for this, their judgment is it's untrustworthy. Yeah. Mm. I'll tell you something else that, that people don't talk about. People forget what an incredible lyricist Ron Mayle was as well. Because mm. mm. he could do this, what he's doing here, just putting together phrases and images in a kind of pop art collage that is droll but not whimsical. And then literally the next track on the album is Amateur Hour, which is well, actual superb, yeah. proper writing about a real mm. subject, which is humorous and sympathetic and mocking and even manages to drop in one outrageously tricksy, metrically perfect, endlessly quotable line. He was amazing. He was amazing. Mm. And I think there's a case to be made that the album covers of propaganda and indiscreet are the best album covers in history or mm. in rock and pop history at least because neither of them quite top the cover of underground by Thelonious Monk which is surely number <laughs> one have a look if you've not seen it but the thing about those Sparks covers is they don't mean anything they're not mm. significant or artistically grand or anything like that they're exactly like Sparks Best Music. They're just examples of what you can do with imagery and the imagination. If you don't think in a cliched way and you don't impose false restrictions on yourself, you can just fill people's heads with all the potential colour and humour and intrigue and novelty of life and make them feel like they're alive and not dead or at least remind them that such things are still possible. It's the value of play. You know, you look at those covers, and they're silly, meaningless 70s album covers, but they're not like abstract prog covers or that hypnosis style of design that's like LSD meets ad agency, where mm. you're looking at stylized, fashionable airbrushed weirdness, you know, like mm. magazine advertising to sell a product. These are bright, living things that that tease the imagination they're lively and unexpected and good for you because they encourage thought and daydreams and great things like everything yeah. else about spark the one tiny criticism really of sparks is their perhaps their over fondness for a pun that you know they oh. say no place in pop music you know it's the downfall of the beatles as we know but uh but yeah but other than oh, that man, yeah. you can't say that about sax and violins mm, yeah i know yeah <laughs> you have to feel for Paul Russell in this song and this performance because Ron's forced him to sing in a key out of his range. Mm, um, mm. Ron said, this town ain't big enough for both of us as written in A, and by God, it'll be sung in A. <laughs> I just feel that if you're coming up with most of the music, you have an idea where it's going to go and no singer is going to get in my way. Mm, oh, he's, mm. he's like Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and Russell said in an interview that Ron couldn't and wouldn't play the song in any other key, so he was fucked. So, yeah, get on with it. Mm. And also, the other thing is, BBC shoddiness well to the forehead. There's a bit midway through where the top of Russell's microphone flies off and he stares into the camera and waves it at us disapprovingly. <laughs> so amateurish. Uh, Amateur hour, yeah, yeah. I went to see him a few times in the 90s. Oh, really? Yeah, when they were playing in London. And the day of one of those gigs, I sustained a scratched retina 
and I came oh. out of the doctors with an eye patch. And I remember thinking, <laughs> there's some gigs you really wouldn't want to go to wearing an eye patch. But if you had to <laughs> list the gigs that you would want to go to in an eye patch, Sparks would have to be number one ahead of Doctor <laughs> Hook or Gabrielle or Momus or Johnny Kidd and the Pirates because that would just be copying a look whereas this looks yeah looking like you would take yeah was this is more like you've adopted an original look which fits and mm. complements the spirit of the artist but what you wouldn't yeah. want to do is turn up with an eye patch and a pirate hat and a cutlass no and a bag of gold doubloons because the point here is not fancy dress it's playfulness and idiosyncrasy and in this case mm. serendipity and that's what sparks were really about yeah there's a lot of songs in this episode which point the way towards the future uh, mainly in a bad way mm. this is one that doesn't yeah this is one that makes 1975 sound like the most exciting mm. year there's ever gonna be yeah, i can't wait mm. <laughs> <laughs> so this town ain't big enough for both of us we spend two weeks at number two held off its rightful place at the top by Sugar uh, Baby Love by the Rubettes. Oh, Robin Nash. Uh, the follow-up, Amateur Hour, got to number seven in August, and they finished their biggest year with Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth, getting to number 13 in November. They'd notch up three more top 40 hits in 1975 before falling off the radar for four years, roaring back in 1979 with the number one song in heaven and beat the clock in 1979. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And the studio ain't big enough for both of us, referring, of course, to Noel. Now, what would Christmas be without a bit of tinsel and glitter? You've guessed the man who's had so many hit sounds. Gary Glitter, the Glitter Band, and always yours! Try 
Travis, now with three mics in his paw, drops the same tinsel slash glitter joke that's been done three years in a row on Top of the Pops now, as he introduces Always Yours by Gary Glitter. We've covered GAD, as we're legally obliged to call sex offenders in this country by their surname these days, many a time and oft on chart music, and this, his eighth single, was the follow-up to Remember Me This Way, which got to number three in April of this year. After I Love You, Love Me, Love and Remember Me This Way, it was a return to the up-tempo glitter beloved by the pop-crazed youngsters, and it smashed into the charts as the highest new entry at number five in June, and a week later barged aside the streak by Ray Stevens to reach the very summit of Popo Montagna. And here he is in the studio, reunited with the Glitter Band, who have scored three top ten hits of their own this year with Angel Face, Just For You, and Let's Get Together Again. And once again, pop craze youngsters, we return to the Music Star Annual of 1975 and pull out another blisteringly critical piece written by either Woodward or Bernstein, I'm not sure, (laughs) entitled glittering gary (laughs) all that glitters is not gold but all that glitters on this page is gary (laughs) golden gary gorgeous gary gary the groover gary of the gilded grin our own gary who's the most glittery guy in pop you're right it's gary So here's some beautiful, sparkling pickies for you. We chatted to Gary as he posed for us. How does it feel, we asked, to be a super, super superstar? Great, was his reply, as he turned to the (laughs) right and changed expression. It's an incredible feeling. I feel as if I have so many friends. The fans make me really happy. Yeah, enjoy that while it lasts. I know that sounds corny, but it's true. It's as if I suddenly have a huge family and <laughs> everyone loves me. That makes me feel really secure. Gara, you're right. We are your friends. All of us. You can strip off all the glitter, all the sparkle, and underneath there's you, a really nice guy, our friend. (laughs) (laughs) Don't lie to me, chaps. Would you have rather worked a melody maker in the 90s or music star in the 70s? Going to fucking Switzerland to talk to the young gods or making up shit in an office about Gary Glitter and, and knocking off early to go to the pub. Yeah. Well, knocked off early to go to the pub anyway, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> the annual is absolutely encrusted with glitter. Uh, there's a piece called My Most Wonderful Moment by Gary Glitter where he tells Music Star about the time a few months ago he's in a dressing room in a post-gig depression when he sees a note from a fan in a wheelchair saying that she was in a car crash and the only thing that gives her pleasure nowadays is Gary Glitter. <laughs> so he gets a roadie to bring her and her mum in and tells her she shouldn't feel so useless and that she could learn to be a typist. <laughs> Whereupon her mum tells Gary that he's the only person she's spoken to in ages, leaving Gary to vow to count his blessings, mm. snap out of his malaise and vow to never do an inferior concert again. Oh, oh it's, yeah. 
Yeah. But anyway, this song, I mean, I must have heard it as a kid, and I would have fucking loved it, but I've got absolutely no recollection of it, and it is the lost Gary Glitter number one, isn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a bit like Squeeze Me by Slade or something like that, really, yeah. Mm. And it's almost like, you almost feel like you've had a lot of Gary Glitter by this point, you know, it's a bit like um, Nick Hayward was still going on top of the pops in about 1986. Whilst getting ready for this, I heard it, and it's like, fucking hell, mm. as far as mock and roll goes, this is fucking all right, this is. Mm. And I think it's the the glitter band yeah. that make the performance and the single work yeah. they, they're fucking brilliant in this yeah they are really good yeah isn't it? it's nice though isn't it to see the the savage young gary glitter yes all piss and vinegar 10 <laughs> yes. vinegar um yeah. <laughs> but like a lot of 70s teen pop this is artistically speaking really all about slightly older men whose ideal mm. of the pop star is still elvis and mm. obviously, to some extent, every solo male performer virtually used Elvis as a template because he invented mm. it. But these blokes still thought it was necessary to have black hair that went upwards and a curled yes. lip and shaking legs and all of that, wear something that shines. And so they all did it, these old fuckers, even mm. though mm. none of them could do it, you know. Yeah. And it's like, when it's Gary Glitter, like, who cares? But it... Might at least have been a bit more interesting to see what we'd have got from a Gary Glitter whose primary role model was Ewan McCall or, or <laughs> Paul Robeson. Right? I'm sure it would have been something startling at least. Because even though he's trying to be an asylum Elvis here, he ends up looking more like if Kramer from Seinfeld was an unrepentant, lifelong sex offender. And that might be eye-catching, but it doesn't doesn't feel like nourishment. Mm. But yeah, the, the Glitter Band were actually quite good and did some good yeah. stuff. And so they own Glitter Band records. Some of those are, are, are all right. Mm. Of course, they're now fixed in the popular mind. They are the court of Bad King Gary, which <laughs> they really don't deserve. No. If just because they play with such a fascinating lack of fluency, you know, and I mean mm. that as a compliment. It's quite interesting and good mm. how plastic and 2d they sound you know and there's a sort of rigidity about it as well yeah. and i mean if you think in a sense one of the things that the beatles took away you know from rock was that certain rigidity you know but it's like the beatles never happened it sometimes feels you know yeah. especially watching mm. an episode like this that you know people want to kind of go back to you know prior to that yeah. well i i think they should have played that rigidity up mm. even more and mm. stripped it down even further because like for a start the sax on this record is just needless honk mm. you know it'd mm. be much better if it was just the crunch of the drums yeah. and guitars but they can't escape the 50s so they put a mm. sax on it like it was Hootsmon or mm. something you know because <laughs> their brains are still locked into this infantile happy days world you know mm. like the whole mm. point of gary glitter's good records was the minimalism and the direct attack but mm. it's yeah it's like a lot of people who aren't particularly driven by unstoppable creative fire as soon as the focus slackens, they go straight back to their roots and just revert to their default, you know, because mm. they've got nothing else. And the default for this whole generation of uh, hard-working hacks was Jack Good's travelling rock and roll stage show or, you know, yeah. Six Five Special, all the shit that these 30-something chumps remembered from their youth. And, I mean, to put it 
delicately it's fair to say that this record brings you several things that the 1970s pop scene was full of but one of those things is definitely 50s pastiche from aging men you know? mm. and it's mm. like what Dave was saying it was like I think the Beatles are important here because a lot of these are, are musicians who began their careers in the 60s mm. so they've got a sense that they can't ever top the Beatles so mm. there's no point trying so mm. the only way forwards was backwards I think that's what happened with yeah. Jeff Lynne's endless tributes to the golden age of rock and roll mm. you know but yeah. at least Jeff Lynne was talented and you also got it from just blokes who didn't have a lot of talent or ideas and knew that making 50s music was relatively easy but of course it's only the basic construction of that music that's easy and actually making it good is a Mm. lot harder than it looks Mm, i reckon something else that's a lot harder than it looks by the way is this band Mm. who who costumes are embarrassed of them (laughs) but Mm. almost certainly thugs underneath gary glitter and the the, the glitter band are all wearing those trust jackets aren't they Mm-hmm. You know those ones with the with the pointy bits on the shoulders that Liz Truss wore, which people pointed out that were very similar to a, a fascist dictator in some television show or film I know fuck all about. They were in them, but obviously more Spangler. Mm. Yeah, it's. But I mean, some people now think, oh, it was the seventies. You know, you'd go out mm. to buy Sprouts and you'd see ten blokes dressed like that. You know. mm. But no, it was just pop music. Mm. Was, yeah. We talked about this before. Yeah. Oh, my dad never wore anything like this. No, no. This was like a kind of uniform for anyone who was trying to be a smash hit in this period. Mm. It was like putting on a pair of overalls to paint a ceiling, you know. Yes. Mm. It's just that some of these blokes managed to make these clothes look like overalls and some mm. didn't, you know. And when you look at this, although the glitter band are definitely the more likable people on the stage, mm. the only one with little enough self consciousness to pull off these garms is gary who does mm. seem natural in them even though he looks like a haunch of venison mm. yeah he's got a right gut on him by now I just say, yeah he looks, he looks like he's got a girdle on or something like that yeah, yeah. although yeah. obviously it's not it's not nice to look at him here or you know cock of the walk mm. when i think we'd all rather be looking at him gripping the edge of the dock like white <laughs> knuckles like ping pong balls but you know, that's the way it goes I, I, I love gary glitter and it was actually my it was yeah. my dream to meet gary glitter you know one-to-one and i i did even think of asking jim to fix it for me at one point oh god you know, of course little was i to know that he had the same dream about me or you know the likes of me i did meet him when i was 13 yeah. did you as mentioned before in chart music and revolver records mm. just standing there at the counter i don't know what he was doing yeah there. Mm. he, he wasn't making a personal appearance he was just there and just hanging around yeah yeah why would gary glitter be hanging around a place that, that young kids would go into it doesn't make any sense at all no hey. but the glitter band just basically are there to just whip him on and at the end they do this punch in the air and pull the fist back down and point directly at us or at at Glitter. It's fucking brilliant. I mean, a record like this could only be made in the mid-70s. I mean, nothing like it was made in the 50s or or, or whenever. Mm. I mean, really, he he is this kind of meta star you know he's sort of somewhere between elvis and liberace perhaps you know but and i think you sort of understand that this whole deeply unnatural repertoire of frantic 
hyperkinetic moves that he goes through that is completely unorganic uh, and it can only really exist in this sort of glitter space that he kind of creates and occupies mm. yeah, again on a top of the pop stage yeah. he's, like, he's like a Beano cartoon writer's idea of a pop star yes. but then the Beano cartoon writer's probably got their idea of a pop star from Gary Glitter you know he's mm. kind of that large It's, it's yeah. um, but it does feel like it's something that's perhaps coming to the end of its natural life whereas Sparks are just beginning you know they're, they're easily going to outlive this well not just this phase of pop you know but many more to come and again microphone issues oh mm. did you notice that what near the end of the song where gary's doing his pieces he, he jerks the microphone up and the top flies <laughs> off the same top <laughs> as the one that russell mail <laughs> i didn't know can't have been the same microphone but because that sparks performance was a repeat from you know months ago that doesn't mean it couldn't be the same microphone this is no, the bbc could be. you're talking about could be it wasn't blue tack invented in 1974 <laughs> Gary just carries on manfully. Of course he does. I would have been delighted with this song being on top of the pops when I was six years old. And, and looking back at it now, it's like, fucking hell, I've discovered a Gary Glitter deep cut. Uh, and it's been yeah. played often in this household, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. It's the best single that Shaking Stevens never did. That's a reasonable mm. comment, I think. Mm. By the way, if we're going to hymn the Glitter Band as the forgotten heroes that they really were... And we should. Yeah, we were t- I was talking about the Sparks album covers, right, in a completely mm. different way. The Glitter Band also gave us one of the greatest album covers of the 70s. Yes. You know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, they did. They put out an album that was just called Hey! Exclamation oh, mark. Just the best title for an album ever. Absolutely. The cover of which is just them standing in a line, all with their fists raised, with a giant cartoon speech bubble over their heads with (laughs) multiple little tails coming off it leading to each of their mouths so they're all saying the Mm. same thing and in the speech bubble it just says hey exclamation mark (laughs) fucking amazing Oh, and they're also in Never Too Young to Rock. Yes, they are. Their big scene in Never Too Young to Rock is them pumping out their huge flat sound to a small audience, including Sally James dressed as an alien, (laughs) for no reason, on a boat cruising slowly down what looks like the Norfolk Broads in late November with the light outside the windows so dim and damp and cold I'm honestly surprised they were able to go on without just putting down their instruments and saying no I'm sorry I just can't do it by which I mean (laughs) anything ever again which uh, which might not have been that much of a problem considering they weren't really asked to but before we go chaps we must go back to the music star annual and a chillingly scientific piece entitled what'll your star be like in 5 10 25 years from now (laughs) where the future of the teeny bop icons are revealed we learn that donny osmond will cause a family rift in 1980 for marrying a (laughs) non-mormon David Cassidy will spend the mid-80s trekking through South America. Jimmy Osmond will rise to become the most popular and successful Osmond ever by the year 2000. And Noddy Holder will grow a beard in the 80s. And in 25 years, quote, This part of Noddy's life is very unclear. It is shrouded in mystery. There are indications to suggest an interest in the supernatural. And these influences obscure everything else. He actually ends up in the Grimleys. (laughs) But finally, we come to Gary Glitter in 25 years' time. (sighs) 
a happy old man. The stars predict Gary will live a very long time. In fact, the older he gets, it seems the better things get for the big chief. <laughs> Always yours would spend a mere one week at number one, deposed by the appalling she by Charles Aznavour. The follow-up would be a return to ham-handed balladry with Oh Yes, You're Beautiful, which got to number two three weeks ago, held off the top by You're the First, The Last, My Everything by Barry White, and is currently the Christmas number nine. He'd score two more top teners with Love Like You and Me and Doing All Right with the Boys in the first half of 1975, but a break with producer Mike Leander and a move to the USA to record the LP GG reaped a poor harvest, and he was cast out into the charty wilderness and would have to wait another ten years before another rock and roll Christmas got to number seven in December of 1984. And as we're recording this it's being speculated in the press that he could be released from dorset prison as early as february of 2023 oh boys do you think he'll have a go at making a comeback i could see him on i'm a celebrity get me out of it Ooh. yeah they'll let any cunt go on that nowadays Isn't that drama about him that channel 4 drama about um oh, some fictional yes. singer, yeah, well, hanged yes, yes <laughs> gary bushel's wank fantasy yeah. i think it was called <laughs> is yours and now we have a fantastic lady and to make it more difficult we'll announce this whilst drinking a glass of water ladies and gentlemen a giga espana oh the latest the fruit of valentino he had been back in his bomber days edmonds and travis embark on another bit this time pretending to be a ventriloquist travis and his dumb air Edmonds while they introduce the next act. When Travis declares that they're going to do it while drinking a glass of water, the dummy produces it and drinks as Travis introduces a Viva España by Sylvia. Born in the village of Hepburn in Belgium in 1931, Leo Kurtz was a musically minded bricklayer who played accordion and piano and taught the trombone in his spare time. In the mid-60s, he teamed up with Will Churer, the Flemish Cliff Richard, and led his orchestra throughout the rest of the decade, developing a talent as a songwriter. In the early 70s, he teamed up with the actor Leo Rosenstraten, who had caused a ripple or two on the Flemish pop scene under the name Robbie Ruse, and in 1971 they wrote the song Eviva España, spelled E-V-I-V-A, in Dutch for the Belgian singer Christine Beervoets, better known as Samantha. After the single cut a swathe through the Benelux, it was picked up on by myriad artists and retranslated in 1972, scoring hits in Holland for Imke Marina, France for Georgina Plana, German for Hannah Arone, German again for Heino, Johannes Neunzig himself, <laughs> and Norwegian for Groenita Schon. 
1973, the variant mutated and spread even further, with versions in Danish by Elizabeth Edberg, Finnish by Marion Rung, Arabic by Melon Barakat, and finally reaching Spain itself when it was recorded by Manolo Escobar, by which time the title was changed to Y Space Viva España, because a Viva means fuck all in Spanish. From there, it spread right throughout the Spanglosphere, becoming a hit for Los Zafiros in Cuba and Billow's Caracas Boys Orchestra in Venezuela. By this point, the song was snapped up by Sonnet Records, the Swedish label who had offices in London and usually put out American jazz artists in Europe, and they offered it to Sylvia Vretthammer, who was born in Uddevalla in 1945 and was singing part-time while she was studying to be a child psychologist and was going to pursue a career in telling kids like me that they weren't going to die and they should stop playing with their nipples in the playground <laughs> until she got a degree on the same day day as a Swedish language cover of Son of a Preacher Man entered the national charts in 1969. However, as she was forging her career in jazz and cabaret songs at the time, she turned the offer down and turned it down a second time. But when her label came back a third time, her husband, the jazz pianist Rune Offwoman, suggested she should do it for a laugh, and it immediately made it to number one in the Svenstoppen. When it dawned upon her label that no one had done an English version yet, she was rushed back into the studio and it was released over here in the summer of 1974. It entered the chart at number 48 in August and then soared 20 places to number 28. She was immediately flown into London to appear on the episode of Top of the Pops co-presented by Edmonds and the Osmonds, which helped it soar another 13 places to number 15. And three weeks later, it got to number four. And here is another chance to see that performance. Come on, Al, if you don't know anything about this one just say so <laughs> i'm sorry man i fell down the fucking rabbit hole of all rabbit holes with this song i mean chaps there's been 21 number one singles in the uk this year and this this one only got to number four but it simply had to be here because it's a landmark single of the era isn't it yeah definitely yeah. i mean yeah. spain was pretty much third place in the most aspirational locations of the mid 70s after california and new york it's weird that like France, which is nearer, in a place like Germany, we're still not going to go to bloody France, you know, full of yeah. frogs with, you know, hoop jerseys and all that kind of stuff. Maintain our stereotypes, you know. You have to eat snails, David. And who the hell is going to go to Germany, you know? We're yeah. practically stood at war with them. Yeah, where are the beaches? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, there's, there's well, that as well. they do have beaches, don't they? But we don't want to go to No, them. no, no. And if we did, we would be fighting them. Yes, 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 indeed. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, once again, films, um, you know, drive from sitcoms are leading the way because you had in the first Steptoe and Son, they go off to Spain, don't they, for the honeymoon? Yes. And then, of course, they carry on abroad, you know, a year mm-hmm. later. And, um, you know, there's definitely in carry on abroad, you know, when they all go off to Els Bells. Yes. You know, this, this strong idea that, like, you know, that the Mediterranean heat will bring about a kind of a sexual awakening or melt away all this Indeed. British frigidity. And, you know, you'll have a bloke that's got in danger of turning gay with his gay mate, but fortunately, Carol Hawkins or, or whatever it was from, from um, Police Sir is on hand with a mate to uh, disabuse any of that. And 
of course, it was the destination of the pace setters of yes, 1974. Yes, it was. Yeah. Such as Blaker in uh, Don't Drink the Water. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. Stephen Lewis, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's, 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 it's I suppose it's, it's people in, in the UK, their international horizons expanding, you know, and it's yeah. like... Yeah, if you went round someone's house and they'd been to Spain, you, you'd know about it straight away mm. because there would be a wicker sangria bottle on top totally. of the telly. Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah it, it was yeah, the equivalent yeah. of the Harrods Tea Towel, but our next-door neighbours mm. were quite go-ahead, and they went to London and, and went to Harrods. I don't know what else they bought, if anything, but they bought a Harrods tea towel, and that was immediately pinned on the washing line, and it stayed there for years. Hmm. <laughs> and they had lots of Spanish stuff in their house as well. But, but definitely, it's not, you know, it's like, I've been to Spain, it's almost like I've been to sex. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, even at this basement level, mm. you could always lure in British punters with the mysteries of Europe. Mm. Right? Mm. The combined... British fear of and trembling fascination with these weird countries where sex was apparently legal oh, well, and yes. you were trusted to drink alcohol after 9.30pm yeah. Yeah. and the classics of European literature were not routinely confiscated and burnt at custom <laughs> yeah. they deprive and corrupt the angelic natives yeah. like places that were sunny and modern mm. although not a lot of this actually applied to Spain in 1974. No, it was in that fashion regime yeah. between, yeah, between full-on Francoism mm. and the, the post-Franco reforms. But I mean, this was still a place where any amount of mm. dancing in the street would have had the Guardia Civil clearing the area mm. with nightsticks. <laughs> Unless it was a street of English pubs in Malaga, yes, where they'd just let the gutters overflow with vomit. <laughs> sunburnt ham mm. and send some grannies in black headscarves to sweep it up in the morning mm. because <laughs> these tourists are money but it was hot mm. which is all that mattered mm. as long as you were able to stomach food that tasted of something mm. you know it was like <laughs> you, you a could... bullfight poster with your name here yes you know, <laughs> lizard in the b-day sun coming out of the tap yeah and you could have it off with some crumpet. Well, funny you should say that, David, because mm. th this song just fascinated the fuck out of me while I was researching, because I learned that as it moved through Europe, the lyrics were changed until they were absolutely unrecognisable from the original. So allow me to give you the first verse and chorus from the original Belgian version. Right. After that beautiful, warm journey through sunny Spain, I forget everything. I only think Spanish. <laughs> My whole room glows with red and orange. The bright colours of the Spanish sun and moon. The Spanish fury has confused me so much. That temperament has conquered my heart. I like dancing and music. A viva España. Of old pride and romance. A viva España. A serenade on the balcony, a viva España. Give me sun every day, España por favor. I mean, the Google translation goes on to say, I only wear Andalusian toilets. So, <laughs> you know, let's not take this as a textbook reading, but it gives us a fair indication of the original lyric, doesn't it? You know, essentially, Northern Europeans craving a bit of sun on their bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, when it gets to Spain and uh, old Manolo gets his hands on it, it, it practically becomes a national anthem. Between flowers, fandanguilos and joy, my Spain was born, the land of love. Only God could make so much beauty, and it is impossible that there could be two. And everyone knows that it is true. 
and they cry when they have to leave. <laughs> That's why you hear this saying, Eviva España, and they will always remember it, Eviva España. The people sing with ardour, Eviva España. Life has another flavour, and Spain is the best. Mm. When Sweden get hold of it for Sylvia, it's very similar to the original with a few amendments to the chorus. But when it comes to Britain, it's completely rewritten. And the basic implication is, is that the good people of Spain are all massive slags who do it with Arthur Mollard and Rita Webb. <laughs> and you should get over there this instant and dip your bread in. <laughs> Sample lyric. Quite by chance to hot romance I found the answer. Flamenco dancers are by far the finest bet. There was one who whispered, oh, hasta la vista. Each time I kissed him behind the castanet. Mm. He rattled his maracas close to me. In no time I was trembling at the knee. <laughs> no non-British person could have written that. And even though Sylvia speaks fluent English, do you think she realises that she's singing about being given a scene to in an alleyway there? Yeah, it's weird though, because these lyrics sound like they were written for a man. Mm. Even though I'm, I don't think they actually were. No, like in, it was just in no time I was trembling at the knee. I mean, yeah, mm. yeah. the same thing happens to the knees of women standing upright in alleyways yes. at the moment of ecstasy. So I've been told, mm. but it's not the usual gendering of that particular naughty euphemism. Up against the door, we have Tethkoff, <laughs> <laughs> and all, all the. All the stuff about the girls being so tasty as soon as they go brown, mm. like Yorkshire puddings. It's <laughs> like the song is almost written from a male perspective, but you can't really imagine a man singing a song like this. Yes. I think it only makes sense, to the extent that it does make sense, as a song sung by a woman, because you need that gloss of glamour mm. to make the stuff in the song seem exciting. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like. As a man, if you were going to get away with a simple celebratory knees-up thing in 1974 mm. like yeah. this, you'd have to be about 40 and look about 60 with a knotted hanky on your head, mm. wearing bad shorts like Charles Autry and Carry On Abroad, yeah. swigging from a hip flap. Or Jack out of On The Buses, he'd do a good rendition of this. Mm. I mean, the actual male equivalent to this is that song, I'm Going To Spain. Yeah, Steve, Steve Bent. Bent. Yeah, another brilliant record from Kenny Everett's so-called World's Worst Record. Show. Yeah! But in that, the bloke sounds completely pathetic and helpless and, mm. and tragic. You know, yeah. which is why it's great. He's a, the bloke in it is a sad sack, so it doesn't sound like a horrible laddish chant along, which this yeah. song probably would. But he sounds hopeful as well. He, he thinks by going to Spain, it's going to change his life and change him. Yeah, well, he's got nothing to lose. And he's saying, I hope I can quickly learn the language. Yeah, yeah. Which your average punter to Benidorm isn't going to think twice right. about learning any <laughs> phrases. Yeah, Oi, Pedro, Marga. Yeah, yeah. I always wished I could speak Spanish, but I've never done anything about it, apart from the, just the yeah. bits you pick up like dust as you go along. The first Spanish word I ever learned was entrada which means entrance from sesame street when i was seven yeah agua yeah weirdly i didn't learn the word salida which means exit until i was about 25 which was a narrower no. scope because 
I could have been stuck inside a building for 18 years. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And whoever wrote this didn't realise that uh, Rudolf Valentino was actually Italian, but hey, you know, it's all the same, isn't it? I'm slightly surprised at that from a record with Swedish, Dutch, Belgian lineage. Yes. Because it's like a British thing, isn't it? You know, where if you're aware of any significant difference between Italy and Spain, people will mm. tell you, you need to get out more. Like, because yeah. the only people who actually know anything about the world are people who never leave their home, apparently. Mm. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. on quiz shows, the, you know, oh, that's a bit before my time. <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah. You mean the concept of having any curiosity about anything to do with the planet that we live on, its mm. nature or culture or history, you know? And then yeah. it's like, okay, first question for 10 points. From where did Phileas Fogg begin his journey around the world in 80 days? Uh, uh, well, I want to say Medemsley Road concept. You know, I hate that kind of proud ignorance, right? It, it, yeah. it, it bothers me more than billionaire corruption in a way because you assume that stuff like that is going to be a part of the world whereas it makes no sense that the fact there are actually rewards in life for ignorance and incuriosity you know mm. in every area of life except afternoon game shows hmm. speaking of half and half biscuit i still maintain the best half and half biscuit line is not one of the ones with a joke in it's from their song about being on the dole which goes mm. There's people who can't spell weird right driving around with thousands in the bank. Hmm. That stuff gets to me. Like when you switch the telly on in the afternoon and it's some program where someone's buying a a million-pound converted farmhouse in Dorset and doing it up. And they're saying, oh, I love this place. It's very unique. And I'm screaming at the TV. There's no such thing as very unique. Uniqueness Mm. is a singular quality. Something is either unique or it is not. And then I realise that my cesspool of poverty and failure and social exclusion is so deep that they can't even hear me. No. Anyway, hmm. we're all off to Sundays. <laughs> Just going back to the the, 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 the silvery, you know, like, and, and whether it should be sung by a bloke or a woman. I, t- I tend to think of this as almost like she's an employee of the Spanish tourist agency or something yeah. like that. She's trying to sort of drum up interest, you know, in Spain, you know, along these kind of slightly salacious lines, you know, and passing out leaflets wherever and bloke thing. Will you be there? You know, this is like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I tend to think of it that way. But I mean, it's it's been rewritten by a British bloke. But mm. looking back on it now, it's it's quite a go-ahead, almost women's lib song. Is a woman who's leaving the country to go off and have some casual sex. Yeah. Mm. Good for her. Mm. Personally, I'd rather she'd done it in this country, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Sylvia, I mean, she's got the Spanish hat on and all that kind of stuff. She looks a bit Margot Ledbetter, but she, she comes off as a, a an attractive teacher type, doesn't well, she? Well, she looks mm. like Billy Whitelaw's pointless sister it's a bit disconcerting (laughs) but i'll tell you what though you just talk about her hat that fucking tattered old hat that she's got that hat has seen many a matinee (laughs) that hat has been on and off a few 737s i think Mm. mashed into the hold on a lot of two-hour flights with the smuggled washes and dolls in national dress because that will have been her life for a season right Mm. sylvia and her goons dashing off to do a pre-record for top pop in amsterdam on the Mm. wednesday and then home for one day and then down to studio hamburg for a mimed performance on 
disco and then yeah. you know a week of cabaret and nor chopping and that hat clearly did not have its own suitcase no it's a fucking disgrace no, she's not bono is she no not to put too fine a point on it it's falling to bits could somebody not have got her a new hat mm. i mean also sweden in the 70s well i'm surprised the government didn't give her a new hat on the yeah. taxpayers kroner <laughs> she's stuck up there representing the swedish nation with a hat that looks looks like it's been in a war mm. it's no good <laughs> and of course the other thing is this is part of the top of the pops osman special so we get the awkward juxtaposition of a woman in her late 20s giving advice about guiltless casual sex to a theater filled with pre-teenage girls who are there to see donny osmond <laughs> it's a bit odd isn't it yeah, but the good yeah. thing is is that episode wasn't recorded in the top of the pop studio it was recorded in a theater somewhere in london yeah. and it really suits the song because this song's pure music hall isn't it mm. yeah. i mean you can imagine barbara windsor in a trash de flamenca on the stage of the lead city varieties belting this out and that bloke mm. banging his gavel and saying big words yes <laughs> yes the most yes inscrutable yes. imperious it doesn't make sense let it <laughs> and of course this came out in august and in early september we'd go to chapel st leonard's on holiday and spend all night in the maid marion club which i fucking loved and this this was the absolute anthem. Yeah. I remember the lady singer who was in residence that week, she was called Kim because I got her autograph on a card and everything with her photo. <laughs> and this was sung every night at least once, more often than not twice. Quite poignant when you think about it because there's all those people there who couldn't afford to go to Spain mm. and ended up there singing about how they're going to Spain. Yeah. Mm. During my deep research on Sylvia... I yeah. eventually discovered her Wikipedia page, which Ooh. says, and I quote, she is perhaps best known for the 1974 <laughs> release, Viva España. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I, I could certainly imagine that this song made it onto Sylvia's greatest hits. I don't own a copy myself, but <laughs> I would bet my £150 cost of living payment that it's on there somewhere. <laughs> Maybe third track on side two. You know. Or a bonus on the CD. Yeah, or just straight after a Swedish language version of the windmills of your mind <laughs> ditch sinners vardakvarna mm. a mate of mine said that scott walker should have done a cover of this song really yeah but then again he needn't have bothered because we can all hear it in our heads now anyway mm. that's probably enough so aviva espana would end up spending 28 weeks on the uk charts and sylvia even managed to bag another chart hit with her follow-up hasta la vista which got to number 38 in may of 1975 and after conquering the uk the song spread to turkey as the football song yasa fenerbahce by nesrin sepahi America as a cover by Pat Boone and Czechoslovakia by Ladislava Kozdakova, where the lyrics were amended to I'm already married. <laughs> And parody versions include Viva El Fulham by Tony Reese and the Cottagers to commemorate Fulham getting to the FA Cup final in 1975. And even Judge Dredd got to number 27 in September of 1976 with a Viva Suspenders, hmm. where he lamented the fact that girls were wearing jeans and not showing off their legs and all that hmm. kind of stuff. Hmm.
Sylvia with the Mechanics song, the Hoover of Spanner. In 1974, our next guest did remarkably well. A whole series of top-selling albums, some great singles, and this one came into the chart at 23 in October. Killer Queen. She keeps them always in a pretty cabinet Let them eat cake, she says Just like Marie Antoinette After another tiresome pun about spanners Edmonds tells us about all the great music that happened in 1974 Including the next single Killer Queen by Queen Yeah, Noel always does this Where he does a shit gag And oh. then immediately lapses into that oh, I mean this most sincerely yeah. tone of voice mm. like, It's fucking hateful mm. It's Huey Green level sociopathy that mm. kind of control over your tone of voice not for entertainment purposes but to ensure that you're setting the tone of a room to just the right level of obedience and with this veneer of sincerity and natural leadership just mm. assumed by a tiny bearded prick with cocktail mm. sausage fingers and <laughs> hair shaped like a wigwam you know mm. just the horror of his narcissistic manipulation which he deployed with increasing success over several decades despite a complete lack of charisma or you know anything to offer i think we're lucky that noel edmonds never attained real power mm. when you come to think it could so easily have happened because this is the recipe for success in this country just that pure shit energy you know no qualities except an instinctive personality disordered facility for treating other human beings as part of your personal enrichment kit and it's always the same old story that british blindness to the painfully obvious methods of self-serving mediocrities mm. with nothing to offer the world but their own mystifying self-assurance is what makes british people easy marks for con men and psychopaths mm. and conniving creeps you know and the really humiliating thing right for all the shame of the german nation for falling for hitler at least he was a genuine one-off Mm. Whereas Britain will surrender its better judgment for any fucking office bore in slacks, you know, the most mm. unimpressive ditch water intellects and non-personalities, just so long as they act like they think they're in charge, mm. especially if there's some token pretense at being wacky or zany or inverted commas funny and nobody ever learns their fucking lessons right in the 1970s and 1980s the, this whole country was taken for a ride by an ugly sinister looking man with unkempt white hair doing a double thumbs up mm. and then almost as soon as they'd worked out that he was a wrong and the exact same thing happened again yeah. with another ugly sinister looking man with unkempt white hair doing a double thumbs up they even looked almost identical facially and no one twigged and the second time around it was almost worse because this cunt didn't even bother to keep himself in shape <laughs> and in between causing harm did no good work for charity in mm. fact quite the contrary I think mm. it's time to learn some lessons. Mr. Blobby. Yeah. We've covered Queen many a time and oft on chart music, and this is the follow-up to Seven Seas of Rye, which got to number 10 in April of this year. 
Released in October as the lead-off single from their third LP, Share Heart Attack, it was given the rub by Top of the Pops the week it was released, which helped it enter the chart at number 23. The following week, it soared 18 places to number 5, and a fortnight later, it camped out at number 2. And despite still having a cob on at Travis for popping up on stage in a janitor's coat, brandishing a broom like a guitar, and miming to Brian May solo on a performance of Seven Seas of Rye earlier this year, here they are for an encore performance. And yes, chaps, that actually happened. A pop-crazed youngster passed on the video of it to me with his broom, the cunt. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Anyway, me dears, we've mentioned before the widespread theory that Queen are sparks for cunts on chart music, and here's the ideal opportunity for a good old compare and contrast, don't you think? Hmm. What this shows, though, not as sweetly as sparks, but sweetly enough for now, is that so-called proper bands could still ride the singles charts in 1974, mm. so long as they were prepared to do something which very few of them were, i.e. meet the pop demands of 1974 halfway. And look, hey, yeah. it turns out that when they did do just that, it augmented them rather than diminished them. Because mm. I think this is one of Queen's best records, right? Yeah. Maybe it's significant that Queen's best records are their gayest, by which I don't mean their campus necessarily. I mean their gayest in terms of the sexuality of the record, right? The most authentically sexual and open and, you know, with something of the atmosphere of a lively male homosexual social life in the pre-AIDS era, you know, which mm. is what comes across here more than any of their other records and maybe that's why it works so well and unlike a lot of their records it doesn't just feel like a zero inflated in size until it circles the planet like saturn's rings Hmm. you know i'm quite fond of killer queen because it's got a sort of genuine slinkiness to it and a sort of silly panther walk you know and i like the very 70s attack all the hot sounds compressed and made to sound very dry like there's an awful lot of sonic content packed into a very small heavy space you know which is the opposite Mm. of those queen records of the 80s which demanded aircraft hangar space and then the actual content was the size of a bag of wheat crunches you know, like a bag of wheat crunches that's just been dumped and left in the middle of this aircraft hangar, you know, mm. corner of the bag gnawed through by vermin. As far as Queen and, and Sparks go, I think the tricky thing is that you've got, you know, you've got Ron and Russell in Sparks. And you know, I was talking about, you know, yin and yang and everything like that. Whereas with mm. Queen, it's Freddie Mercury and Brian May. So it's more like kind of yin and twat, really. <laughs> this would still be one of their earliest Top of the Pops appearances, but the, the persona of pre-moustache Freddie's already in place, isn't it? Mm. And it's already clear to everyone at Top of the Pops that he's the only person worth looking at. Yeah. He's right front and centre and the band are scrunched into the corner and hmm. um, we get lots of lingering close-ups of Freddie with his black fingernails with a saucy finger running up and down the oh, mic yeah. stand. Yeah. 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 yeah, this is the clip they always show, isn't it? 
And mm. after all these years, it's quite strange to see this clip without snide little captions popping up, making fun of the fact that they dress differently to people from the time that the captions were written. Yeah. What a way to make a living. This is pretty much the campus we're ever going to see Freddie Mercury if you discount his go at Bet Lynch in the I Want to Break Free video. But chaps, would the pop craze youngsters have been aware that they were inviting one of those into their parlours in late 1974? No, because uh, they weren't gays yet. They didn't come until 1975. And, That's um, right, yes. Quentin Chris. The assumption would be that everyone's gay yeah. on top of the pops <laughs> round about this time. So, I mean, I know that most punters seem to have no or not much idea about Freddie mm. for a while, but I find it impossible to imagine that sophisticated, culturally curious, man of the world, music biz professionals such as we mm. would not have taken one look at him and thought... I won't have to worry if my girlfriend gets on unusually well with him. Because, uh, I mean, the public gaydar was still under construction, but it's oh, not it, like... It was just made out of tin cans and bits of string, It was just it? a hole in the ground with a sign-up. But the, there wasn't some huge, opaque divide between gay culture of the 70s and the slightly less hairy end of rock culture. Mm. You know, Not to the point where a band called Queen with a singer who camped it up this outrageously, would pass without recognition, Mm. you know. I think people, certainly the public, were slower to catch on with Elton John. Yes. Because although he was flamboyant, it wasn't very sexual. So he didn't make that connection, and he just looked like he was in a costume. Whereas Freddie's outfits certainly are costumes, but he never looks like he's in costume. He's just being Freddie. Yeah. He'd only be in costume in a jumper and jeans. (laughs) We just assumed it was all part of the performativeness of um, pop at this time. You know, we just assumed that their domestic lives were entirely orthodox. To be honest, as a six-year-old, this completely passed me by. Mm. But David, being a bit older, you'd have known all about Queen. Oh, yeah. I was well into Queen at the time, you know, and I was still right through to, like, Bohemian Rhapsody or whatever, you know, even even that. Spoke to my kind of early teen self. Mm. And, I mean, I think Seven Seas of Rye, it was kind of a love-me-do, really, you know. It didn't really quite... But I think with this, you know, like I said, they, they definitely established themselves in the old, old pop firmament, really. Mm. I mean, retrospectively, I, I still do like this, but I tend to think, well, apart with a handful of songs, I, I'm still in the kind of Queen Suck school, really. Mm. But certainly at the time, no, I mean, again, the sort of gender transgressiveness that you get with Freddie Mercury, that even though they're not quite sure of his states or whatever. And I think the um, that the physicality of it, the force, the attack, you know, the layering of it. Mm. And to the general audience, it would be about this woman who's obviously done Freddie wrong. Mm. Yeah, but let's spare a moment to think about Brian May. Because his yes. family shivered all winter without a fireplace so he could yes. have that guitar. <laughs> and worse still, he made the strap out of cavity wall insulation and the strings <laughs> were 13 amp fuse wire. So they were fucking freezing. That's a, they had to set fire to his 1957 Stratocaster for warmth. <laughs> 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 oh, let me just do some Brian May jokes. He wrote the solo in a fit of inspiration after an apple fell on his head just after he'd had it chopped off by Oliver Cromwell and so on and so on. And so on. But Brian May's solo it 
sounds properly new and original in tone if you could wheel back to 1974 this would sound really new oh yeah it's like he was still feeling the novelty of that guitar sound Mm. himself you know years before we all got sick of it Mm. but he couldn't think of anything else to do because he was too busy with his telescope and (laughs) his wife with the same haircut as him just (laughs) being happy and into physics yeah like this town ain't big enough for both of us to a lesser extent it's it's impossible to remember how mental this record must have sounded at the time on the radio yeah Mm. and how equally mental that it nearly became number one Mm. it is prog for looking readers isn't it yeah Mm. it's it's shrewd you know that's a good thing to do and a shrewd thing to do Mm. anything else to say about this we don't need to no let's move on to something a bit more significant well we might not have anything to say about queen but i know someone who does <clears throat> Rock expert David Stubbs. That's <gasps> right. Hi, I'm David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. <laughs> here to bring you a hard-driving mix of hard rock and hard facts. Today, I'm going to talk about Queen. Sure, you had Princess. Say I'm your number one. You had Prince. <laughs> Kiss. But Queen outranked them all. They were Queen, and they were outranked by King. Love and Pride, which is bogus! <laughs> Formed in London, England, Queen were famous for such iconic, hard-driving albums as A Night at the Opera, A Day at the Races, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup. <laughs> but this, Killer Queen, was their most iconic single to date. Catalog number E35826893597G. That's E35826893597G. That's e three five eight two six nine eight three five nine seven g With his microphone stand action and puckering lips, Mr. Freddie Mercury is a veritable swordsman of the stage, London's (laughs) gayest blade. It's all about the timing, the action of lips and stand. Thrust, pout, pout, twirl, thrust, 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 twirl, pout, thrust, pout, twirl. Pout, thrust, twirl, and pout, and twirl, and thrust. I thank you. I mentioned the word gay there, but not in the sense of some of you are people are thinking. Freddie was flamboyant, but he was one of the boys. He'd have given John Inman short shrift, that's for sure. And yet, vicious, unfounded rumors about his sexuality dogged him to the end of his life. In the end, he came out. Hey, I'm gay, he said. But we who were true to Freddy, true to rock, knew what he was doing. He was like, get off my back. All right, if I say I'm gay, maybe that'll stop you asking the damn question. He wasn't gay. It was just his clever way of putting an end to the speculation. But we knew. Freddy was a man's man, loved by men, many men, and I was one of them. I'd have done for him whatever he wanted me to do, which is why I go down on my knees right now before the one and only Freddie Mercury. (laughs) So Killer Queen would spend two weeks at number two, held off the throne by Gonna Make You a Star by David Essex. The follow-up, Now I'm Here, got to number 11 in February of 1975, then all went quiet for most of that year. But they roared back with Bohemian Rhapsody getting to number one for nine weeks and being the Christmas number one of 1975.
them pop craze youngsters. We're going to leave it there and gird our loins for the final furlong tomorrow. But before we go, let me remind you, the biggest ever video playlist for an episode of Chart Music is waiting for you on YouTube right now. Everything we've heard, everything we've talked about, it's all there. Seriously, if you want to listen to 16 different versions of Aviva España, fucking hell, it's your lucky day. So, take your head over to youtube.com slash chart music TOTP, navigate your way to the playlists and tuck in, you lovely people. So, until tomorrow, this is Al Needham advising you to keep warm and stay pop crazed. <laughs> Sharp music. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So... What are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.